This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 14, In the Creation of the World and All Things in It. The true God distinguished by certain marks from fictitious gods. Sections 17. Though the devil is always opposed in will and endeavor to the will of God, he can do nothing without his permission and consent. 18. God so overrules wicked spirits as to permit them to try the faithful and rule over the wicked. 19. The nature of bad angels. They are spiritual essences endued with sense and intelligence. 20. The latter part of the chapter briefly embracing the history of creation and showing what it is of importance for us to know concerning God. 21. The special object of this knowledge is to prevent us, through ingratitude or thoughtlessness, from overlooking the perfections of God. Example of this primary knowledge. And 22, another object of this knowledge, that perceiving how these things were created for our use, we may be excited to trust in God, pray to Him, and love Him. Section 17. With regard to the strife and war which Satan is said to wage with God, it must be understood with this qualification, that Satan cannot possibly do anything against the will and consent of God. For we read in the history of Job that Satan appears in the presence of God to receive his commands and dares not proceed to execute any enterprise until he is authorized. In the same way, when Ahab was to be deceived, he undertook to be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets, and on being commissioned by the Lord proceeds to do so. For this reason also the spirit which tormented Saul is said to be an evil spirit from the Lord, because he was, as it were, the scourge by which the misdeeds of the wicked king were punished. In another place it is said that the plagues of Egypt were inflicted by God through the instrumentality of wicked angels. In conformity with these particular examples, Paul declares generally that unbelievers are blinded by God, though he had previously described it as the doing of Satan. It is evident, therefore, that Satan is under the power of God and is so ruled by his authority that he must yield obedience to it. Moreover, though we say that Satan resists God and does works at variance with his works, we at the same time maintain that this contrariety and opposition depend on the permission of God. I now speak not of Satan's will and endeavor, but only of the result. For the disposition of the devil being wicked, he has no inclination whatever to obey the divine will, but, on the contrary, is wholly bent on contumacy and rebellion. This much, therefore, he has of himself, and his own iniquity, that he eagerly and of set purpose opposes God, aiming at those things which he deems most contrary to the will of God. But as God holds him bound and fettered by the curb of his power, he executes those things only for which permission has been given him, and thus, however unwilling, obeys his Creator, being forced, whenever he is required, to do him service. Section 18. God, thus turning the unclean spirits hither and thither at his pleasure, employs them in exercising believers by warring against them, 
assailing them with wiles, urging them with solicitations, pressing close upon them, disturbing, alarming, and occasionally wounding, but never conquering or oppressing them. Whereas they hold the wicked in thraldom, exercise dominion over their minds and bodies, and employ them as bond slaves in all kinds of iniquity. Because believers are disturbed by such enemies, they are addressed in such exhortations as these, Neither give place to the devil. Your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith. Ephesians 4.27 and 1 Peter 5.8 Paul acknowledges that he was not exempt from this species of contest when he says that for the purpose of subduing his pride, a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet him. 2 Corinthians 12.7 This trial, therefore, is common to all the children of God. But as the promise of bruising Satan's head in Genesis 3.15 applies alike to Christ and to all his members, I deny that believers can ever be oppressed or vanquished by him. They are often, indeed, thrown into alarm, but never so thoroughly as not to recover themselves. They fall by the violence of the blows, but they get up again. They are wounded, but not mortally. In fine, they labor on through the whole course of their lives, so as ultimately to gain the victory, though they meet with occasional defeats. We know how David, through the just anger of God, was left for a time to Satan, and by his instigation numbered the people, Second Samuel 24.1. Nor without cause does Paul hold out a hope of pardon in case any should have become ensnared by the wiles of the devil, Second Timothy 2.26. Accordingly, he elsewhere shows that the promise above quoted commences in this life where the struggle is carried on, and that it is completed after the struggle is ended. His words are, The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Romans 16.20 In our head, indeed, this victory was always perfect, because the prince of the world had nothing in him. John 14.30 But in us, who are his members, it is now partially obtained, and will be perfected when we shall have put off the mortal flesh, through which we are liable to infirmity, and shall have been filled with the energy of the Holy Spirit. In this way, when the kingdom of Christ is raised up and established, that of Satan falls, as our Lord himself expresses it, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, Luke 10.18. By these words he confirmed the report which the apostles gave of the efficacy of their preaching. In like manner, he says, when a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. Luke eleven twenty one and 22. And to this end, Christ, by dying, overcame Satan, who had the power of death. Hebrews 2.14, and triumphed over all his hosts that they might not injure the church, which otherwise would suffer from them every moment. For, such being our weakness and such his raging fury, how could he withstand his manifold and unintermitted assaults for any period? However short, if we did not trust to the victory of our leader. God, therefore, does not allow Satan to have dominion over the souls of believers but only gives over to his sway the impious and unbelieving whom he deigns not to number among his flock. For the devil is said to have undisputed possession of this world until he is dispossessed by Christ, 
In like manner he is said to blind all who do not believe the gospel, and to do his own work in the children of disobedience. And justly for all the wicked are vessels of wrath, and accordingly to whom should they be subjected but to the minister of the divine vengeance? In fine they are said to be of their father the devil. For as believers are recognized to be the sons of God by bearing his image, so the wicked are properly regarded as the children of Satan from having degenerated into his image. Section 19 Having above refuted that nugatory philosophy concerning the holy angels, which teaches that they are nothing but good motions or inspirations which God excites in the minds of men, we must here likewise refute those who foolishly allege that devils are nothing but bad affections or perturbations suggested by our carnal nature. The brief refutation is to be found in passages of Scripture on this subject, passages neither few nor obscure. First, when they are called unclean spirits and apostate angels, Matthew 12.43, Jude verse 6, who have degenerated from their original, the very terms sufficiently declare that they are not motions or affections of the mind. But truly, as they are called, minds or spirits endued with sense and intellect. In like manner, when the children of God are contrasted by John, and also by our Savior, with the children of the devil, would not the contrast be absurd if the term devil meant nothing more than evil inspirations? And John adds still more emphatically that the devil sinneth from the beginning, 1 John 3, eight. In like manner, when Jude introduces the archangel Michael contending with the devil, Jude verse 9, he certainly contrasts a wicked and rebellious with a good angel. To this corresponds the account given in the book of Job, that Satan appeared in the presence of God with the holy angels. But the clearest passages of all are those which make mention of the punishment which, from the judgment of God, they already begin to feel, and are to feel more especially at the resurrection. What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Matthew 8, 29. And again, depart ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew twenty five forty one. Again, if God spared not the angels that sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. 2 Peter 2, 4. How absurd the expressions that devils are doomed to eternal punishment, that fire is prepared for them, that they are even now excruciated and tormented by the glory of Christ, if there were truly no devils at all. But as all discussion on this subject is superfluous for those who give credit to the word of God, while little is gained by quoting scripture to those empty speculators whom nothing but novelty can please, I believe I have already done enough for my purpose which was to put the pious on their guard against the delirious dreams with which restless men harass themselves and the simple. The subject, however, deserved to be touched upon, lest any by embracing that errors should imagine that they have no enemy, and thereby be more remiss or less cautious in resisting. Section 20 Meanwhile, being placed in this most beautiful theater, let us not decline to take a pious delight in the clear and manifest works of God. For, as we have elsewhere observed, though not the chief, it is, in point of order, the first evidence of faith, to remember to which side soever we turn, that all which meets the eye is the work of God, and at the same time to meditate with pious care on the end which God had in view in creating it. 
Wherefore, in order that we may apprehend with true faith what it is necessary to know concerning God, it is of importance to attend to the history of the creation, as briefly recorded by Moses, and afterwards more copiously illustrated by pious writers, more especially by Basil and Ambrose. From this history we learn that God, by the power of his word and his spirit, created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, that thereafter he produced things inanimate and animate of every kind, arranging any innumerable variety of objects in admirable order, giving each kind its proper nature, office, place, and station, at the same time as all things were liable to corruption, providing for the perpetuation of each single species, cherishing some by secret methods, and, as it were, from time to time instilling new vigor into them, and bestowing on others a power of continuing their race, so preventing it from perishing at their own death. Heaven and earth being thus most richly adorned, and copiously supplied with all things, like a large and splendid mansion, gorgeously constructed and exquisitely furnished, at length man was made man by the beauty of his person and his many noble endowments, the most glorious specimen of the works of God. But, as I have no intention to give the history of creation in detail, it is sufficient to have again thus briefly touched on it in passing. I have already reminded my reader that the best course for him is to derive his knowledge of the subject from Moses and others who have carefully and faithfully transmitted an account of the creation. Section 21 it is unnecessary to dwell at length on the end that should be aimed at in considering the works of God. The subject has been in a great measure explained elsewhere, and in so far as required by our present work, may now be disposed of in a few words. Undoubtedly, were one to attempt to speak in due terms of the inestimable wisdom, power, justice, and goodness of God in the formation of the world, no grace or splendor of diction could equal the greatness of the subject. Still, there can be no doubt that the Lord would have us constantly occupied with such holy meditation, in order that, while we contemplate the immense treasures of wisdom and goodness exhibited in the creatures as in so many mirrors, we may not only run our eye over them with a hasty and, as it were, evanescent glance, but dwell long upon them, seriously and faithfully turn them in our minds, and every now and then bring them to recollection. But as the present work is of a didactic nature, we cannot fittingly enter on topics which require lengthened discourse. Therefore, in order to be compendious, let the reader understand that he has a genuine apprehension of the character of God as the creator of the world. First, if he attends to the general rule, never thoughtlessly or obliviously to overlook the glorious perfections which God displays in his creatures, and secondly, if he makes a self-application, of what he sees so as to fix it deeply on his heart. The former is exemplified when we consider how great the architect must be who framed and ordered the multitude of the starry host so admirably, that it is impossible to imagine a more glorious sight, so stationing some and fixing them to particular spots that they cannot move, giving a freer course to others yet setting limits to their wanderings so tempering the movement of the whole as to measure out day and night, months, years, and seasons, and at the same time so regulating the inequality of days as to prevent everything like confusion. 
The former course is, moreover, exemplified when we attend to his power in sustaining the vast mass and guiding the swift revolutions of the heavenly bodies, etc. These few examples sufficiently explain what is meant by recognizing the divine perfections in the creation of the world. Were we to attempt to go over the whole subject, we should never come to a conclusion, there being as many miracles of divine power, as many striking evidences of wisdom and goodness, as there are classes of objects, nay, as there are individual objects, great or small, throughout the universe. Section 22 the other course which has a closer relation to faith remains to be considered, that while we observe how God has destined all things for our good and salvation, we at the same time feel his power and grace, both in ourselves and in the great blessings which he has bestowed upon us, then stirring up ourselves to confidence in him, to invocation, praise, and love. Moreover, as I lately observed the Lord himself by the very order of creation, has demonstrated that he created all things for the sake of man. Nor is it unimportant to observe that he divided the formation of the world into six days, though it had been in no respect more difficult to complete the whole work in all its parts in one moment than by a gradual progression. But he was pleased to display his providence and paternal care towards us in this, that before he formed man, he provided whatever he foresaw would be useful and salutary to him. How ungrateful, then, were it to doubt whether we are cared for by this most excellent parent, who we see cared for us even before we were born. How impious were it to tremble in distrust, lest we should one day be abandoned in our necessity by that kindness which, antecedent to our existence, displayed itself in a complete supply of all good things. Moreover, Moses tells us that everything which the world contains is liberally placed at our disposal. This God certainly did not that he might delude us with an empty form of donation. Nothing, therefore, which concerns our safety will ever be wanting. To conclude in one word, as often as we call God the creator of heaven and earth, let us remember that the distribution of all the things which he created are in his hand and power but that we are his sons, whom he has undertaken to nourish and bring up an allegiance to him, that we might expect the substance of all good from him alone, and have full hope that he will never suffer us to be in want of things necessary to salvation, so as to leave us dependent on some other source, that in everything we desire we may address our prayers to him, and in every benefit we receive acknowledge his hand and give him thanks that thus allured by his great goodness and beneficence, we may study with our whole heart to love and serve him.